I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah, go to chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to uh, look that up. I was thinking about, when I was thinking about coming to preach, beginning to prepare, I started laughing to myself one day because I remembered a opening uh, second semester. It was a little colder than it is today. It was uh, somewhere around freezing. Uh, I was in the dorm that morning. We had um, Thursday and Friday classes. I think you guys start tomorrow, one extra day. It was a Thursday morning. I was walking up to the alumni building from the dorms, cold, sad, a little depressed, looking at all that the semester had before me, a little grumpy that Christmas break was over. As I looked around, walking up that sidewalk, it appeared to me that everyone else was in the same state of mind. Got to class, and the teacher, trying to encourage us, said something along the lines of, you know, hey, um, at least it's only a two-day week. Wouldn't it be great if all the weeks were like that? And somebody in the class made the obvious comment that if that were the case, we'd have a whole lot more weeks in the semester. In other words, reality breaks in one way or another. But um, the semester went on and spring came and summer and things certainly got better. Let's read to the, tonight Isaiah chapter 1. Not the entire chapter. I'll ask you to read with me there. Isaiah 1 and let's move to... Uh, so you can see the text there. Isaiah 1 starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 18. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger, they are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. It is desolate, is overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers. As a besieged city, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs, or of he-goats, when you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? 
Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you wake many prayers, or when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Father, bless your word as we heard sung about tonight. Bless it to our hearts tonight, to our minds and then our hearts. May the Holy Spirit have freedom to work, accomplish your very good purposes in our lives. Let tonight be an important part of that in the lives of these young people. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I have a vivid memory of sitting in this room, listening to a chapel speaker one morning, as I mentioned earlier. I don't remember a lot of the chapel sermons, but I do remember this one. God had been working deeply in my heart, and I was coming to grips with the reality of His Lordship in my life and with the fact that He alone could truly satisfy. Those two things, his lordship, and that nothing else could really satisfy me. I felt a deep longing for a real vision for God and his power. I wanted to know that God was real and that he would do miraculous things. I grew up in a Christian home, a wonderful Christian home. But I wanted to see God do something. I wanted Christianity to to be real to me. And so that morning in chapel, God had been preparing my heart. The speaker began to recount stories, and the stories had to do with God's working and the lives of people around the preacher. He was describing what I longed to see, but I, I'd heard about it, but I never experienced it in my own life. And I walked out of that, cha- out of chapel that day, and instead of going to lunch, I almost ran back to the dorms, and I went down to the prayer room. I began to beg God to do something like that. I didn't even know what I was praying for. I just knew that I had a glimpse of what it could feel like, be like, if God were that real. And I wanted it. You see, I'd come to the conclusion that if Christianity is just a list of rules, then I just wasn't interested. But if God is real and His Word is true, and He really cares about me, then I wanted to know Him, and I wanted to follow Him. What I want you to do tonight is lift the eyes of your heart to see God with new eyes, new light. Look above the mundane of your life. Look out of outside of the woes of the beginning of the second 
semester and see God in the grand scope of his magnificent work in the world. And ultimately, I want you to get a glimpse of your place in God's grand scheme. So how do I want to accomplish that goal tonight? I want to take you to the first chapter of Isaiah. It's a tremendous place, Isaiah. We could almost pick any chapter in the book. It's a place where we see God lifted up in the magnificence of His glory, His gracious work through the ages. One commentator I read put it this way, Perhaps in no other biblical book are the wonder and the grandeur of the biblical God so ably displayed. He says, Isaiah seems to be saying that if humanity could ever glimpse the true picture of God's greatness and glory, our problem would be on its way to being solved. You say, what, what problem is he talking about? In essence, he's talking about a life full of ourselves. And what does it take to get us out of that? It takes in one way or another a view of God's greatness and glory. Four things tonight. Number one, a vision for the ages. Two, discovering your place. Three, maybe the crux of the text and the sermon tonight, repentance, not religion. And we'll finish with the hope of the gospel. But let's begin with the vision for the ages. In Isaiah 1, the very opening verses, I want you to look at it there. Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah introduces his book this way, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now catch this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. There are two things right there that ought to grab your attention. Number one, when God speaks, all must listen. He says, hear, O heavens. He's not talking just to one group of people. This isn't a personal conversation. Look at what he says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. It's like the entire creation stands before him as his audience to open what is, in my opinion, the greatest prophecy that we have in the Old Testament. One of the longest and the most comprehensive. And he opens it with this call to all of creation to hear. Why? Because the Lord has spoken. But the startling thing at the beginning here is that the entire creation is called to hear. In other words, there is no, you have your God and I have mine. That concept, it's illogical in the context of what Isaiah is saying. If your religion meets a need for you, that makes no sense. With Isaiah saying, listen, O earth, heavens, pay attention to what God is saying. There's none of that here. There's none of the, if it meets a need for you, if you're really sincere. We're not dealing with feelings here. We're dealing with reality. It's a call to all of creation to hear the word of God. The second thing that ought to grab your attention, maybe surprise you, 
is that God is calling on all the earth to listen specifically to what he will say concerning one city, (laughs) Jerusalem. He says, the vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's a call to all the earth to hear what God has to say about one city. Now, why would, why would Isaiah do that? Or why would God do that? You might say, why should I care what happens in, and fill in the blank, I don't know, Lincoln, Nebraska. Fair question. But you can't say that about Jerusalem. Not if you understand its role in God's plan. Very briefly, look at verse 1. The vision is directed to Judah, specifically the city of Jerusalem. Run your eye down to verse 21. Isaiah calls Jerusalem the faithful city. Do you see that? But then he says the faithful city has become, and he doesn't mince words, does he? In the the old King James, it comes out pretty direct. Faithful city has become a harlot. Righteousness lodged in it. But now what do you have in Jerusalem? Isaiah says, now it's murders. But wait, look down at verse 26. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. It sounds like God is talking about some type of renewal for Jerusalem, the city that is identified in terms of a harlot and murderers. Now God is saying, but I'll restore your judges, your counselors, afterward... Thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So 21 and 26, the bookends are unfaithful city and now faithful city. You see, Isaiah seems to be indicating that God has a plan for Jerusalem to take the unfaithful city of Isaiah's time and restore her to faithfulness. And so the question is, is it true? Has it happened? If you look at the entire prophecy of Isaiah, you see that at the center of it is this city, Jerusalem. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if you were to go all the way to the end, or almost to the end, in Isaiah 65, if you want to see it, go for it. Verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mine, but be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold... God is speaking, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing. Jerusalem, a rejoicing. It's not Jerusalem, city of harlots or city of murders. It's a rejoicing and her people, a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And the key fact here is that this, what he's describing... Hasn't happened yet. One of the books that you read, I don't don't know what the name of the class is, but it's that really thick book, The History of the World, The Penguin History of the World. I saw that my daughter was 
I was about to say reading it, but truthfully, I'm not sure how much she was reading it, but that might be a different conversation. I'm sure she read the assigned pages. And I saw that. I said, hey, I, did you buy that? She said, no, I rented it. I said, how much would it cost to buy it? And we worked it out, and I'm reading it. Love it. <laughs> you probably didn't love it. I know that, but I'm enjoying it. You know what you see there? If you match up what you read there with what Scripture says, obviously there's some different perspectives going on. However, it's amazing what aligns. You work your way through through the history of the Bible, and you realize that Jerusalem and Isaiah's time, Isaiah never saw what he prophesied. And finally Babylon came in and crushed Jerusalem. And though there was the remnant and, and, and times of what seemed like a renewal or revival, it never was. It never came to be what Isaiah describes. It isn't that way today. So what is it? How do we understand the prophecy? And it is that God's plan for the consummation of history is centered on the renewal of that city, Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. How do we understand that? It is that ever since Adam and Eve were forced to leave the presence, that's the key word, the presence of God in Eden, God has been at work in in an ages-long process of restoring the possibility that He could again dwell with His people. It's about His presence with us. It's about dwelling with us. Why do you think there was the tabernacle and ultimately the temple? It was about God's presence coming down. But it was so limited. Only the priest could enter certain barriers, pass certain barriers. Only the high priest once a year into the Holy of Holies. Ultimately, those the tabernacle and the temple were just a shadow of God's presence. It all pointed ahead to the day when God will truly dwell with His people in a new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth. He will dwell with those He has redeemed. Look and see that God is at work in time and space. You know why you should actually read the history of the world? So you can then read the Bible, and understand that God is at work in time and space and history to accomplish His grand and glorious work. For just a moment, please, look above the the, the struggles of a new semester and the relationships and the homework and see God and what He's doing One of the commentators said, here's a vision which is bound to deliver us from spiritual nearsightedness and small-mindedness. If only we can grasp it, or better still, and I love this line, allow it to grasp us. Let God fill your heart and mind with a vision of His magnificent and glorious work from the beginning of time to the end of the ages. There's a question that may come to your mind, should, I think, and it is, how do I find my place? That's all well and good, but sounds glorious, but it doesn't 
seem to connect with me in a very practical way. So you say, how do I find my place? Let me answer that with three facts that this text establishes. One, the text from the very beginning establishes that God is Lord. Hear all heavens, verse 2. Hear all heavens, give ear all earth, for the Lord hath spoken. When God speaks, all must listen. They do not give attention now to the voice of God. One day they will. Why? Because Jehovah God is Lord over heaven and earth. You will never truly discover your place until this fact is firmly established in your heart. You will wander from one thing to the other in all these experiences of self-discovery and you will never find it until you align your life with this all-important fact that He is Lord. It's another fact, and that is that He is Father. Hear, O heavens, look at verse 2 again. And give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now look at this. I have nourished and brought up children. This is the beginning of the most magnificent prophecy in the Old Testament. 66 chapters. And right at the beginning, the way that God addresses himself to his people who are in rebellion against him is, one, establishing the fact that he is Lord, and then secondly, it is the the reminder to them that the relationship is not master to servant primarily. It is father to child. I am your father, he is saying to them. Every detail of God's dealings with his people centers around that fact that he relates to us first and foremost as a father. There's a British guy, his name is Michael Reeves, who wrote a book about the Trinity. I'm going to quote a little passage here. I'm going to quote it because the British know how to say things better than we Americans sometimes. Isn't that why we like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, right? And so he, he puts it this way. Since God is, before all things, a father, and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does, being a father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. Only a British guy would put it that way. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father and he rules as a father. And that means that the way that he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Do you understand that God's confrontation in your life comes down to you always out of the loving heart of your of a heavenly Father? 
He has chosen you, chosen to love you, and to love you specifically as a father. What a God we have. Ruler of all, father above all. But there's one more fact that the text establishes that helps form this framework in which you can begin to discover your place within God's kingdom. And that is that we are broken. Look at verse 2 again. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children... And they have rebelled against me. There's something broken about a father-child relationship in which the child rebels against the father. There's something in us that recognizes that when we see that, something is broken. It shouldn't be that way. Might be, the, might be the fault of one or the other, or certainly a complex mix of, 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 of both, but we see that and something is broken. In verse 3, he goes on to compare his people, his children, to dumb animals. It's almost funny. Because the comparison is that the animals show themselves to be more rational than God's people. Look at verse 3. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. In other words, the ox knows who his master is, and the donkey knows where to get fed and who he submits to. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. In verse 4, he calls them a people laden with iniquity. In verse 5, God gives this vivid description of the depravity of his people. As I began to study this passage a few months ago, what struck me is beginning in verse 5, the vivid description of the brokenness of this, of the people, the depravity. It is, he says, why should you be stricken anymore? In other words, why do I have to keep beating you up? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. It's this vivid description of brokenness. I want you to see tonight that the only way to begin to find your place in God's wonderful design is to come to grips with the depths of your own brokenness. So I look back on 26 years of pursuing God, seeking to live in a way that honors the Lord. I think the defining characteristic of God's work in my life has been to reveal to me more and more of my own inadequacy, my own weakness, layers of selfishness and pride, different ways have defined me. And you ask, why does God work this way? Why brokenness? And it is because the nature of God 
is to resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. That is his nature. So the only way to begin to understand what God is doing and what your place is and to begin to discover the deep satisfaction that there is in loving God and knowing Him and serving Him, the only path is brokenness. That's why Isaiah is preaching. And it's why we find these vivid descriptions of their brokenness. He's calling them to see it to face their reality. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. It's the only way. Death to self. Brokenness. These three facts form a framework in which you can begin to discover your place in God's kingdom. So you ask, all right, where do I turn? Where do I go? This is the framework. So where do I turn? And what Isaiah shows us here is absolutely crucial. The answer is, and there's the summary on the screen, repentance, not Religion. Now let me explain. In verses 11 to 15, there is one central principle in play. And it is that one does not draw near to God. You do not draw near to God by means of religion. In other words, empty religion is not the answer. I want you to see it. Verse 11, to what purpose? Is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord. He says, I am full. In other words, I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. He says, I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, he asks, who hath required this? In other words, all these sacrifices, who required these things at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. He says, I cannot away with. In other words, I cannot endure it. I don't want any more, he's saying, of this religious ritual. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moon and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. He's talking in very... Serious terms about hating it. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. You say, how in the world can God talk this way about some of the very things that he commanded? Sacrifices, burnt offerings, Sabbaths. How can God say, do away with it? I don't want it. When, when he commanded most of them. What's going on is that at the heart of this portion of chapter 1, at the heart of it is this fact that we so easily want to try to manipulate God. 
We do it in a variety of ways. But one of those is through religion or through religious ritual. It's, it's the sense that if we do things the right way, then God is obligated to bless us. And it does not work that way. That is religion that God ultimately rejects. You cannot put God under obligation to you. You can seek to live a perfect life. And God is under no obligation to you. Look at Job. The Bible calls him the most righteous man living. And look what God permitted. That's why Job, through the course of that book, you see that Job struggled with the sense that he knew he wasn't being punished for sin. But he was struggling, trying to justify himself before his friends and ultimately before God to say, God, I don't deserve this. And how did God answer? God never answered that that issue for him. It was never, this is why I did it. God simply at the end said, this is who I am. And there face to face with a vision of God, Job understood that Nobody can say to God, because of what I've done, you owe me. It does not work that way. Your pursuit of obedience, a moral life, doing what's right. If there's any sense in your heart that you want to gain favor with God, You want God to bless you. It's religion. And God ultimately rejects that. You see, the path to a deep, satisfying relationship with God runs not through religion, but through repentance. We just read 11 to 15. Now look at verse 16 with me. Because that is exactly where Isaiah turns. He confronts their empty religion. And in verse 16, he goes straight to repentance. He says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. There's a little shift in the sense from the negative to the positive. He says, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Well, what what grips me about these two verses is the comprehensive nature of repentance that Isaiah describes here. You see, repentance is real. It's tangible. It's negative. Put away this. Cease to do evil. It's positive. Learn to do this. Seek this. Judge, plead, relieve. In other words, repentance is a putting away of sin and evil in our lives. It is an embracing of habits that are good and right. You will never discover the reality of of deep and beautiful fellowship with God if you refuse to embrace a lifestyle of repentance. I understand that when a person gets saved... There is a a moment, somewhat isolated in time, of repentance. 
where God opens your eyes to see and believe. And yet at the same time, the scripture all the way through points us to the need for ongoing repentance as a lifestyle. It's habit that you embrace as you pursue godliness. It means that you are willing to put away sin and to keep doing it, to keep putting it away. To cease to do evil, to actually cease, to stop doing it. It means that you learn to do well, to pursue those things that are truly righteous. But that leads us to one more very important key question. And it is, is repentance enough? If religion is not the answer, is repentance enough? In other words, is that how you draw near to God? By working really hard to be good and do right and to not mess up? And the answer here, and I want you to see how how it unfolds, but the answer is a resounding no. Moral reform is never enough. In fact, moral reform alone will kill you. You say, why do you say that? Because you will either end up, one, on one side, you'll, you'll either end up full of pride, condescending to all around you if you're somewhat successful in your pursuit of righteousness, or... If you're not so successful in your pursuit of righteousness, then you will end up frustrated and bitter. Or somewhere in the middle, if you are successful, and like Job, you don't receive what you think you deserve, you will certainly end up bitter. No moral reform and repentance alone is never enough. What you need is a work of God done to you. You need a cleansing of your heart by God. See, we just read verses 16 and 17, that comprehensive call to repentance. And now look at verse 18. He says, come now. It's like a stop in the narrative. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You say, what is this? Where did this come from? Why the stop? Why the come now? Essentially what he's saying is, come now, let's be reasonable. Let's be logical. Let's reason together. You say, what's the logic? What, 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 are, what are we talking about? In the context, I think the logic is this. If all that you have is either religious ritual or your ability to repent and change, you have no hope. That's why he stops them and says, let us reason together. You have rejected Me as father, you have pursued a rebellious, unrighteous life. I'm calling you to to repent. So now let's stop and reason together. And if moral reform, you can do better, was what Christianity is all about, then he wouldn't 
He wouldn't say what he says in verse 18. He would go a radically different direction. Verse 18 would be something like, work really hard. You can do it. (laughs) Don't quit. That's not where he goes. Let's reason together. What is repentance? Let's reason together. What's the logic here? It is that if all you have is repentance, if all you have is an attempt to change on your own, you have no hope. You say, why? I think it's embedded in in verse 18 in this sense. When he says your sins are scarlet, I think what he is saying is that we've reached a point of crisis. I think I think that's the imagery there. The divine judge is reasoning with you and me, the accused. We have a tremendous dilemma, and that's a massive understatement. The crimson there is a description of the point of crisis to which we've come. But suddenly, this call to to look, consider, embedded in there, not only is this this, this emphasis that we have a crisis, but also built into there is the solution. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be, they will be, as white as snow. And though they be red, like crimson, they shall be as wool. You see, it is here that suddenly, as happens so often in Scripture, seemingly out of nowhere, grace appears. It's amazing. 1 through 17, you don't see anything about grace. And when you least expect it, God says, let's reason together. You have no hope. But I will do something. I will give you grace. When judgment is expected, grace intervenes. The divine judge reasons with the accused. He makes an offer which is truly amazing in its generosity. Nothing less than total pardon. It is that your sins will be washed away so that your heart is made new, white as snow. But you must understand this, that repentance and grace must always stay close together. You should never think that you can earn grace by means of your repentance. Moral purity will never put you in a place or put God in a place of obligation to you so that he has to show you grace. It doesn't work that way. However, we must keep them close. Sometimes it seems that grace comes first. You've lived in rebellion against God. And when life seems about to implode around you, suddenly, in some tangible way, you, you, you see God's mercy in your life and you're so moved by God's mercy that you respond with repentance. Sometimes that's the order in your experience. Sometimes it seems to be the opposite. It's like the fear of God's judgment drives you to repentance And then you experience God's grace. Either way, they can't be separated. Where does this grace come from? 
what I'm saying is, don't think grace somehow puts us beyond repentance. It's not that. It is that the ongoing repentance which we live in, the habit of life, is what opens our hearts for that renewal day by day of God's grace in your life. Now, where does this grace come from? And I want to show you something really beautiful, and then I'll be done tonight. Glance back at verses 5 and 6. In those verses, God refers to his people with a variety of adjectives. Refers to his people as stricken, wounded, bruised, among others there. Keep those words in your mind. Stricken, wounded, bruised. God says, I have stricken you. You're wounded. You're bruised. Why would God do that to his people? To call them to repentance. Stricken, wounded, bruised. And then, 53 chapters later, those same words show up again. But this time they describe what the servant of God bears in our place. You see, in the beginning it's God's people are stricken, smitten, wounded, bruised. And then in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, we read, Surely he, the servant, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. In other words, just as God's people were experiencing the brokenness of their own sin like wounds and bruises, so he, the servant, was wounded and bruised for our sin. And who is the servant? Of course, you know our Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you respond? I want you to see God for who He is, the great I Am, Lord of all creation, your loving Father. Embrace a lifestyle of repentance. Cling to the grace of God in your life and run to Christ who was stricken for you so that you could find life in Him. My heart for you is that God would open your eyes to see the big picture and understand your place within that framework. His Lord, His Father, we are broken. And that's where grace comes in. And that's why we love Jesus Christ. Father, Take your word tonight and bore it deep into the hearts of those in whom you want to to call tonight to, to a deeper sense of your presence. May Jesus Christ be first and foremost 
the eyes of our hearts day by day. Help these young people all through the semester to live in the habits of repentance so they can find, like verse 18 there, the grace of the gospel every day new for them. May they respond by loving you and yielding to you as Father despite all that you permit in their lives. Help them to find you to be sweet and satisfying. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.